You're listening to a Toronto Centre podcast. Welcome. The goal of TC Podcasts is to spread the knowledge and accumulated experience of global leaders, experts, and world-renowned specialists in financial supervision and regulation. In each episode, we'll delve into some of today's most pressing issues as it relates to financial supervision and regulation. The financial crisis, climate change, financial inclusion, fintech, and much more. Enjoy this episode. Hi, everyone. Welcome to this Toronto Centre podcast. I'm Chinhui Ng, Program Director from Toronto Centre. We have just published a TC note entitled Drivers of External and Inherent Risks in Risk-Based Supervision. And I'm very pleased to have the author here, Paul Wright, to talk to us about it. Paul is a veteran regulator and supervisor and a longtime program leader with Toronto Centre. Paul, thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you, Chuanhui. It's a great pleasure. Paul, you have authored many TC notes on risk-based supervision for Toronto Centre, and this note is the latest one. What was the motivation for this note? Does it involve a change in approach to risk-based supervision, or RBS, compared to the earlier TC notes? And why have you written it now? Well, the first thing to say is that it, it certainly doesn't involve any change of approach. The approach that we've set out for risk-based supervision is, uh, as I say, set out in a number of earlier TC notes. Um, what we talk about in this one is firmly rooted in that framework, so there's no, no change there. If we're looking for an overarching theme, the note is really about clarifying the treatment of external and inherent risks. Experience has shown us that supervisors often have difficulty with some aspects of this, so it's really meant to clarify how supervisors might approach some of these issues. Well, thank you for that, Paul. And the note talks about drivers of external and inherent risks, and perhaps we could talk about each in turn. How would you define external risks, and what are some examples of these? Now, the note suggests that there might be some imprecision in these terms and that you are okay with that. And that comes as a bit of a surprise to those of us who have worked with you over the years, Paul. Well, let me take your points in turn. So external risks are what are sometimes called either macroeconomic or macroprudential risks. And they cover things like economic downturns, changes in interest rates, or changes in sector-wide competitive conditions. And the point about external risks is that no individual firm can control them. But even the smallest firms need to be aware of them and to ensure that their controls and management take account of them. And on the question of imprecision, let me give you an example. So let's think about a change in interest rates. Now, that clearly is macroeconomic in origin. So central banks change interest rates in response to a variety of things, including inflationary pressures. Now, that change in interest rates may in turn affect savings behavior. It might affect investors' attitudes to risk, for example. So the first of those, the change in interest rates, could be a macroeconomic thing, but the change in savings behavior could be seen as a macroprudential one. So you could classify a change in interest rates as being either macroeconomic or macroprudential. The good news is it doesn't really matter how you classify it. The important things first are to identify these sources of risk, know it's there. And second, think through what it means for other 
more conventional inherent risks that we're all familiar with. So an economic downturn, for instance, is likely to affect borrowers' creditworthiness and hence credit risk. If it leads to volatile asset prices, it'll affect market risk and so on. So what we're really doing is taking these external things and turning them into risks that we are familiar with, the familiar ones from the matrix. Turning them, in other words, into things like credit risk and market risk that as supervisors we can work with. Now, on macroeconomic and macroprudential risks, what would you say to financial supervisors who say that macroeconomic issues are not my area of expertise? Well, absolutely. We don't expect individual supervisors to be able to make judgments about economic or macroprudential trends. It's not their job, and most of them wouldn't be equipped to do it. And even if some individual supervisors were equipped to do it, supervision needs to be driven by a consistent view of these things, not individual supervisors' opinions on them. Supervisory bodies need to find an authoritative source for macroeconomic or macroprudential forecasts. And, you know, the sort of sources they might choose would be people like the economic or financial stability departments of central banks or the IMF. And these people are equipped to produce these kinds of uh, assessments and forecasts. But what supervisory bodies do need is a mechanism for turning these kinds of projections that they'll get from the central bank or the IMF into what I call supervisor usable implications for inherent risks. So supposing we're expecting an economic downturn or we find that the life insurance market is saturated, which would be a macroprudential thing, the question is what does that mean for the inherent risks that we're all familiar with. And supervisory authorities need to take economic and macroprudential assessments and forecasts supplied from elsewhere and form a house view about what those mean for inherent risks. I found your analogy of a risk hopper interesting and guiding supervisors on what to do once they have identified external risks. So what is a risk hopper? And how does it guide supervisors? Well, a lot of what I've already said is about taking rather generalist views that we know are a source of risk and making them what I call supervisor usable. Uh, let's take an example of climate change. I often hear supervisors talking about something called climate change risk. Now, let's be clear, climate change clearly poses enormous risks. But the use of that blanket term, climate change, it doesn't really help me understand what these are. The Hopper analogy says, let's start with a general idea about a source of risk, which may not be very precisely articulated, and then figure out what it actually means, for example, for credit risk or insurance risk. Now, the climate change example is one we're all familiar with, but I also hear supervisors talking about things like economic risk or political risk. And the hopper, I mean, figuratively speaking, is a way of getting more precision in what those blanket and rather imprecise terms actually mean for supervisors. I mean, a hopper, I'm not really familiar with these things, but I think a hopper is something you find, a piece of agricultural machinery, you put grain into it to sort of sort it out. And that's where the analogy comes from. You really put these uh, not very well articulated ideas into a hopper, figuratively speaking, and you sort them out into the things that we can deal with, like credit risk and market risk and so on. 
And I wonder how we can apply this concept of a risk hopper to consider, for example, how financial technology or fintech feeds into risk-based assessment of a firm. Well, yeah, that's a good uh, example. I'm happy to talk about that. So we're, we're all familiar with the use of new digital mechanisms for distributing financial services I and mean, using mobile phones, for example. And now this can obviously be of great benefit, um, for instance, in in increasing access to financial services. But the development of new distribution channels like that also has implications for inherent risks. I mean, they may increase the risk of mis-selling or make it harder for firms to avoid being used as channels for money laundering, for example, because of the absence of kind of face-to-face contact. So, uh, as I say, distributing electronically has great benefits, but it may also have uh, additional risks that it poses. So to continue the earlier discussion, we can put uh, fintech, as we may call it, this rather general term, into the hopper, so to speak, and really think through what these new developments are likely to mean for the risk categories that we're familiar with. So does the use of digital platforms, for instance, increase conduct risk, or does it increase money laundering risk, and so on? It's a way, really, as I say, not of identifying new risks, but taking a new phenomenon like electronic distribution and figuring out what it means for the risks that we are familiar with. Well, we've talked quite a bit about external risks and perhaps we could move on to inherent risks. And it seems that the broad categories of inherent risks are clear and you have listed the main ones in the note, for example, credit risk, market risk, conduct risk, etc. Perhaps we can zoom in on two inherent risks that are perhaps less precise and clear to supervisors. Uh, First is operational risk, and the second would be strategic risk. What would you say about these? Uh, Well, you're right to highlight those, and and indeed the note uh, does go into these. Those two categories, that's operational and strategic risk, can be a bit problematic uh, because they're harder to define. So some supervisors see operational risk, for example, quite narrowly in terms of failed processes or people. Uh, But others take a much broader view of operational risk, and they'd include in things like legal and reputational risk. And similarly, with strategy, some supervisors only consider strategic risk when a firm is staking its future on a whole uh, new change of direction while others take a broader view and they would worry about whether a firm has a strategy at all and whether management have thought through its viability. And some supervisors, again, don't even include strategic risk at all. Now, these differences of view about operational and strategic risk are fine, actually. They don't matter as long as supervisors are clear about what they mean by the terms and they're used and applied consistently throughout the supervisory agency. So know what you mean by these things and be consistent about it. And then, frankly, it doesn't matter if two supervisors define operational risk slightly differently. I wonder if we could come back to the climate change risk that we talked about earlier. And one common question is whether climate change would constitute an inherent risk in itself or whether it can be subsumed within other categories? And what would you say to that? Yeah, so I think the big question here is whether the term climate change risk in itself really helps supervisors. And as I think you may gather from what I've already said, I don't think that term really helps very much. It's obviously an enormously important issue, but the term isn't particularly helpful. 
But if we can be clear about the implications of climate risk for the other inherent risks that we are familiar with, like credit or market or insurance operational risks, we'll get a lot further in really understanding the implications. So to give an example, I'm supposing climate change means that a particular region of a country is more prone to flooding than it was in the past. That will have direct implications, for example, for banks, where lending to property uh, in the flood-prone area will be riskier, and it'll have implications for insurers, because obviously the risks of insuring buildings in flood-prone areas uh, will be higher. And in both cases there, what we're doing is identifying implications of the flooding or the, the wider climate change for the inherent risks that we're familiar and that we can work with. Well, thank you for that. I think that adds uh, much clarity to this issue. So having identified the inherent risks, financial supervisors would certainly need to assess and then rate them. So what factors or drivers would govern the rating for an inherent risk? So the general issue of rating inherent risks has been discussed extensively in the earlier notes on risk-based supervision. I mean, as a general principle, I prefer to see four categories, for example. They might be high, medium, high, medium, low, low, whatever you want to call them. And we suggest in the earlier notes some um, criteria uh, for categorizing risks into those boxes. So I won't go into that again, and, and indeed this um, TC note doesn't. However, the latest note does pick up some of the ideas that were first set out in a note that was published only a few weeks ago, actually, on the risk-based supervision of retail conduct, which I'd also urge people to look at. And that note very interestingly pointed out that the level of inherent risk in a given product, say mortgages, can vary a lot depending on things like the nature of the product and how it's designed, the audience, if you will, or the customer base to which it is targeted, and how it's distributed. And the same is true in other cases, other products and other business lines. The level of risk embedded in what are ostensibly the same products or business lines can actually vary quite a bit according to factors such as design and distribution. Uh, and there's an interesting, as I say, very interesting discussion about that uh, and the implications of it for retail conduct supervision in this note that was published in October. And the latest note uh, that I've written takes that important idea and widens it out a bit to look at these so-called drivers of risk more widely. So it's tr not just true in the retail sphere, it's true in others, that when we look at a product, um, actually the level of risk embedded in that product depends a lot according to the things surrounding it, as I say, how it's designed, how it's marketed, uh, and so on. You also talked about risk cards in the note and the use that some supervisors make of so-called baseline risks, especially for credit. Now, those strike me as really useful, but you then go on to say that these can be a starting point only in risk assessment. Uh, why is that? So, yes, well, as you say, baselines and risk cards can indeed be very useful for supervisors. Risk cards remind supervisors of what we mean by credit risk and market risk. They remind them of the various ways in which these risks can arise. So, for instance, credit risk can arise in all kinds of ways, not just lending, but through all kinds of other activities as well. So they're very useful reminders. Uh, and these baselines are very useful for establishing a sort of 
average level of riskiness, if I can put it that way. So a baseline might say, for example, the credit risk attaching to mortgages tends on the basis of past experience to be quite low, while that on, let's say, lending to small businesses may be much higher. And you can see why that might be true. So, you know, people, mortgages after all are about people's homes. They're very reluctant to default on that loan because they may lose their home. And indeed, if they do, then they, for the bank or for the lender, the loss given default may be mitigated by the fact that they can then repossess the home. In other words, the loan is secured, whereas none of that is true of small businesses. So you may often find supervisors saying, well, you know, we look at past experience and we look at common sense and we say that the risk on, let's say, a mortgage uh, may be lower than that on lending to small businesses. And the point we make in the note is that this is all very valuable guidance. But as you say, it should only ever be used as a starting point. What supervisors need to say to themselves is, okay, this is what the baseline says, and I can understand the reasons for that. Now, are there factors specific to this firm or this product, the so-called drivers I was talking about a few moments ago, which mean that in this particular case, the baseline needs to be adjusted? So if you take the example of mortgages, are there particular reasons for believing in the circumstances of this firm or the customers that it deals with that the baseline or the actual rating may be higher or lower than the baseline suggests? Well, thank you very much, Paul. And I'd just like to bring our session to a close. Is there one piece of advice that you would give based on this work? Well, actually, I've got a couple, a few points I'd like to make, if I may. The first one goes back to this issue of the external risk category. And I hope I explained how that should be used. So uh, when we talk about macroeconomic risks or macroprudential risks, we need to think uh, about what they mean for these other more familiar risks, such as credit and market. And to that extent, I think the external risk category of the matrix, oftentimes we have two columns at the beginning of the matrix that talk about external risks. Those should really be considered as a kind of checklist. They're slightly different in nature from the other columns and the other risks. The external risk column is like a checklist. Make sure that those external factors are identified and that the implications for conventional inherent risks are thought about. So in other words, they're somewhat different from the other risk categories. The second point is that I always remind people that although the risk-based framework is incredibly important, and as you know, I've spent a great deal of time thinking and, and writing about it, nevertheless, it is nothing more than an aid to structured thought. And when we think about the supervisory matrix, it's a device for bringing together all the evidence-based, all the evidence and all the judgments that we've made about risk. And that needs to be based on two things. First of all, clear thinking about what risks are really present. It doesn't really help to talk about country risk or economic risk or political risk or climate risk. You need to boil it down to other things that we can work with as supervisors. And secondly, using informed judgment to assess whether what we're putting on the matrix and what we're putting in our assessment actually makes any sense. So I'm a great believer in that. The risk framework is really important piece of apparatus, and it's great that we've got it, but it is only a tool. It's not an end in itself. It's a, an aid to structured thought and good judgment. Well, thank you again for those closing thoughts are very pertinent to everyone who is uh, in the practice of RBS. So I'm here today with Paul Wright, and you've been listening to a Toronto Centre podcast. Thank you for joining us.